It is now time for me to welcome onto the broadcast my dad for a very unique conversation, which is really special to our relationship and something that's really, really cool that we got to do together. So with that being said, I bring in Pop. Dad, how you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you, son? I'm doing well. And you and I had, you know, a, a unique moment this time around when it comes to the tournament of being able to sit together and experience this together. So let's start there and kind of just reflecting on the fact that we got to enjoy the tournament together this time around in a very unique way where we had never sat together at an NCAA tournament game before. And we did that this year in Albany. Yes, we did. Because in 2016, you were down on press row and I was up in the nosebleed section. <laughs> so so we, we got to do it this time around. We went to Albany. We were going to go on Friday and my dad was feeling a little bit under the weather. So we decided to go on Sunday instead. And when we went on Sunday, this was the round of 32. And this was deciding who was going to make it to the Sweet 16. So my dad and I saw UConn go up against St. Mary's and Miami face off against Indiana. The two games that we saw after never seeing an NCAA tournament together ever in our history, the two teams that we saw advance, advance through Albany and just so happened to remarkably be 50% of the Final Four. What do you think about the fact, Dad, that of all of all games that we could have chosen, of all places that we could have been, that we both ended up seeing these games together, making history together, and that both of those teams are now in the Final Four? Well, again, it gives us a, a, a unique perspective on, uh, on commenting on the Final Four. We got to see two teams that, that made it. Uh, ironically, you've got two teams from the state of Florida that are in the final four. So, yeah. So, I mean, when you go back and you look at that UConn St. Mary's game, what did you take away from that? What did you think about that? The first one that we it was the first one we got to see, and so seeing UConn up close, what did you think? Uh, they're they're impressive. Um, I don't think they're gonna beat Miami, but they're impressive. I think Miami's going to win the game in the paint. I think O'Meara is going to dominate. And I think Luang is going to drive and drive and drive and score. Yeah, you know, and, and when we look back on this, you know, we, we saw Isaiah play the way that he played in, you know, unconscious, almost 30 points in the game for Miami when they went up against Indiana, even though there were six lead changes in the second half of that game. Miami commanded that game, if you go back and really take a look at it. And UConn has been winning by these massive margins of victory, which has been very unique because typically you see 20-point wins or 15-point wins at the beginning of the season. You see those in November, maybe December. You don't typically see them in March. So, I mean, obviously they got to play each other, but do you think that, you know, as you look back on it, we saw up close two very dominant teams? Would you describe them in that way? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's almost like the history of the, of the tournament. You see teams get better as they go through the, the tournament, and teams are better than what their records may be. 
against other teams that had outstanding records. So yeah, I think you're gonna you're gonna see one heck of a game, but I think Miami's gonna come out on top. Yeah, you know, and and, and getting to to speak with these coaches and you know spend time with them and really get to reflect on them. You know, I think what's what's been beautiful about this is you know Jim Laranega and you and I were talking about him off the air. Jim Laranega, 73 years old. If he were to win the national championship, I believe that he would be the oldest coach at the time of winning. So what do you think about Jim Laranega? Because I know that, that we were discussing him yesterday. I think he's, he's, he's fun to watch on the sidelines. Um, you see he has a, a great connection with his team. And he's enjoying this moment. Um, You can just see it. You can see it on his face. You can hear it in his words after the game. And, you know, being one of the old guys, it would be nice to see him win. (laughs) You know, and in his relationship with his players, you know, we, we, you and I, because after that, going to the games in Albany, you and I were watching the games, you know, this, this past Friday, and we saw, the continuation of Miami as they handled Houston. And, you know, you, you see him give, give, uh, I think it was Nigel Peck give, giving him, you know, a, a kiss on, on the side of his head. And, you know, he said, I'm replaying or I'm repaying what happened in the last game and whatnot. When you see a coach get so happy, get so excited, smiling, you know, kissing his player and, and just in, in, you know, celebrating in the way that Jim Laranaga does, what, what does that do for you to, to see a coach celebrate the way that he celebrates? Well, what I take from his connection is he has the respect of his players. And in society today, I think there's a, a real big lack of respect between people, regardless of age. And he has a connection. He has a great connection with his players. And I think those kids, once they're beyond playing ball, they're going to look back at their connection with, with their coach, and they're going to find that he has developed them to be adults and to be successful adults. Yeah, and I, I, I had the blessing of, of interviewing the players going into this game that they just won up against – a very, very strong and and good opponent in Texas. And I asked each of those players what the best piece of advice Jim Laranega has given them. And to go down the line and to hear from to from Norshad and and Nigel and you know, as well as Isaiah and and just hear what what the message was and and what they've taken away from their coach. Like you said, building that respect and that connection with his players and and having that respect and, and Wooga Poplar, I got to hear, you know, his thoughts and Jordan Miller, these guys speak so highly of their coach. And he said something yesterday that, you know, he follows, he follows the, the seven rules of, of, of successful people. And he was talking about it after the game and, and he gave the first two, but he said, you know, to be, be ready, to be prepared. And, and the, the second thing he, he only talked about the first two yes, yesterday. So the first one was to be ready, you know, be prepared for a situation. And then the second one was to see the end 
in the beginning. So to see kind of where you plan on being to to envision the end of the road and, you know, hearing him, it, it it almost seems like and I know that this isn't true because I know my interaction with him. When I ask him a question, he's not given that question ahead of time. But the way that he answers questions is that he knows what's coming. He doesn't answer it in what somebody would call coach speak. He he really thinks about his answers and he looks like he knows what's what what's going to be asked to him really, which he doesn't. And 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 I love sitting back and hearing from him and seeing how he tells the story of the answer. And I'm just moved by him. And and I know that that you and I have spoken a lot about him recently here over the last couple of weeks. But, you know, like you said, respect is something we don't see in society a lot anymore. And we're seeing it between people hearing the way his team talks about him and then hearing the way that he can reflect and respond to a question that he didn't know was coming. I just think there's an art to the dance of that. And, you know, you are a prosecutor for many decades, and so you have to choose your words very carefully, even when you don't know what's coming. So when you see somebody do that in the world and be able to answer and deliver a message on the fly, I, I just think it's a really special gift that Jim Laranega has. Absolutely. And, and didn't those two rules play out in yesterday's game? Yeah, I mean, I'm watching that game, and I'm thinking in that second half, there's no way Miami's coming back. But they were prepared, and they were prepared in a way where they went to the they went to the basket. They went to the basket. They didn't rely upon a three point shot, which a lot of teams will do when they're when they're down. They just kept going to the hole, going to the hole, and scoring, and thinking about the outcome. Right? Yeah. The, the way they played that second half, they pushed the outcome to their favor because Texas, it seemed like at some at early in the second half, kind of lost their game plan. And they got very cautious on the shots that they were taking and who was taking the shots. Um, and that really allowed Miami to come back. You know, the preparation and the end goal. And the end goal was to win, and they did. Yeah, Miami going to their – and it's hard to believe, knowing the history of Miami and their sports, that this is their first Final Four, but it is their first Final Four. Jim Laranega has led the team to -to back-to-back Elite Eight berths and now into the first-ever Final Four in school history. Really awesome history for him, too. Dad is is the fact, and, and I'm here this morning, wake up call with Dan Tortora here on here on the broadcast inside of the Cafe Kubal Studios with my dad celebrating the fact that we got to see 50% of the final four from Albany, which was really, really cool. And so now we look at 17 years later. This is this is where life gets really special, and this is where I feel like God writes poetry better than anybody else. Jim Laranega doesn't just guide Miami to the, their first Final Four. Exactly 17 years after he did it with George Mason, he's going back to the Final Four. 17 years to the day of March 26th, he is going to the Final Four with two different teams. So when you know that about Jim Laranega, 
that here he is with Miami doing it with Miami for the first time ever in Miami's history, but it's on the, it's on the 17 year anniversary to the nose of when he did it with George Mason, just what that means even farther and how cool that is to see Jim Laranega do it with two schools, 17 years apart and make history with them both. Yes. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's ironic. And here's, here's a tip, Daniel, um, as a prosecutor, if you didn't know the answer to a question you were asking, you were in trouble. Yeah, that's all. And, and, and I, you know, and, and, and I wonder that too, is when you are examining or cross-examining a witness, is, is that kind of how you go into it of saying like, I know the answer that I'm seeking. So, you know, let's see if this is the answer I'm going to get, because especially when you cross examine, that's, that's more difficult too, right? It's not always your witness. So did you approach everything, asking questions, anticipating the answer? Um, yes. And if you didn't do your homework and you got an answer you didn't expect, then you were scrambling. And especially on cross-examination, you never answer, you never ask a question you don't know the answer to. So of all the questions that you've asked in the time of being a lawyer, how, how much of a percentage of the time do you feel like you knew the answer? Like in the sense of when you asked it, and so like how many t- percentage-wise between scrambling and not scrambling, how many times did you find yourself, especially in like you said in cross examination, scrambling to know something or to to kind of figure once they gave that answer to figure out where to go from there? What can you say probability wise it was to follow your rule? How well did you follow your own rule? Um, I'm gonna say there was very few times I I scrambled. Do you have a moment or two that stick out to you of being a prosecutor that were some of maybe the the toughest or most challenging moments, the moments where to the naked eye they thought maybe you, you didn't have it, but you knew deep down inside, like, I'm going to get there? Yeah. Uh, I can think of two examples, and – not involving me, but de- involving defense attorneys who asked questions that they didn't know the answer to. Okay. Um, one was in a drug case, and the uh, it was a New York State uh, investigator was on the stand, and the defense attorney said, and uh, investigator did you speak with Mr. Tortora before the, before uh, coming in the court today? He said, yes, sir. An investigator, did Mr. Tortora tell you what my defense was? He said, yes, sir. He said, you had no defense. Oh, wow. <laughs> so the judge almost fell off the bench. She was laughing so hard. And uh, there was a conviction in that case. And years, years before that, uh, God rest his soul, I was sitting second chair with Dick Hennessy, and we were in a trial. Um, the defendant was a police officer yeah. from the town of Clay who had committed multiple burglaries. And uh, 
the defense attorney kept asking questions he didn't know the answer to, and he kept getting hurt by the answers. So, yeah, yeah, you got to live by that rule. You never ask a question you don't know the answer to, or the question is so innocuous, the answer can't hurt you. So you were a prosecutor for almost the same amount of time that Jim Boeheim was the head coach of Syracuse. How many times do you think that Jim answered a question that he didn't anticipate, but you felt like he knew the answer to it? That Jim did? Yeah. Boeheim? Yeah, dealing with the media, how often do you feel like Jim, not knowing the answer to a question, answered it in a way like he knew the answer? Well, not having watched a lot of his his post-game press conferences, it's it's a hard question to answer. I, I think Bayheim never answered a question he didn't want to answer. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I, would, I would agree with that. And, and I think in those situations where the question was asked and Jim didn't want to answer it, he was very curt and short in his response. Almost dismissive of the question. Yeah. Yeah, I think Jim had a very he a very unique way, continues to have a unique way of how he answers it. Here with my dad, seeing half the nation's Final Four in their first time going to the tournament together is the history that we get to celebrate here today. So, uh, Dad and DT, I'm calling it. Before I let you go, Dad, going over to UConn, you and I were sitting amongst a sea of UConn fans, which was very strange and felt out of place in upstate New York, but there are a lot of UConn fans. There are UConn alum. And so being there watching that game as St. Mary's took on UConn was to me, as I told you while we were there, a unique experience in the sense of the fact that here you are in upstate New York and you're in an arena where people are cheering for UConn and you feel like that's not something that they're supposed to do in upstate New York. So what was it like to hear UConn essentially have a home game against St. Mary's? And and as a longtime Syracuse fan and a native of Syracuse, what was the experience like for you as you reflected upon the fact that you were, you kind of walked into, we walked into a husky den of sorts in Albany? Yes, we did. And I was rooting for St. Mary's all the time. <laughs> so, so, it's, so now that now that we've seen UConn win and advance forward, Dan Hurley, the head coach of the team, has the opportunity to do something really, really great. Is is to have, you know, the fact that his dad has has had so much history with the game and connection to the game and coaching. His brother is coaching. And, and so he got to be with his mom and dad on the court as the team advanced to the Final Four. Speaking on UConn, his brother came out. His brother coaches Arizona State, and Arizona State fell earlier on in the tournament. And his son is on the team playing for him. So to know it from that respect, I know it's hard to ask a Syracuse fan about UConn, but when you see a coach on the court talking with his parents and, and having that time, I, I spoke with him about the fact of, of his family being there, and he shared with me, I have a family that is my blood, and they were here, and our connection is great. 
but I have a family with this team. I have two families. And, and so, you know, as a father, as you and I talk today and, and you get to be a part of my show, his parents got to be a part of his show, essentially, on the court. So you see that through a unique eye. What do you think about moments like that? Well, you know how important family is to me. Yeah. You know, and my last uh, position that I held, I treated the people who worked with me as my family. So I can understand that you can have two families. And I, ironically, I used to call, um, my coworkers, my kids, because most of them were younger than me. When I first started in the position, most of them were older than me. By the time I got done, I was the oldest guy in the office. So, and, uh, and then they were my kids. It, you know, it's family is everything. Extended family, God bless if you have it. Um, I think we need more of it. We need more connection. We need more human connection in this world today. Put down your cell phones and start talking face to face. You'll you'll discover it's a really enjoyable experience instead of playing on your cell phones, kids. Um, yeah, uh, you know, to see to see someone's family come out and support them, it's the greatest feeling in the world. And my dad did that. My dad was at my games, whether I played or I did not play. And, you know, that is something that has meant a lot to me. Came out to Mary Wood when I was a keynote speaker for the first time in my life. And obviously there for graduation. And, you know had a cake made for me that said you did it to reflect on my grandfather who, you know, my dad, when my dad graduated from law school, he went up to my grandpa and he said, he said, pop, we did it. And he said, no, Ralph, you did it. And then my dad continued that moment with me when I graduated from college, he said, you did it. And then when my dad retired from being a prosecutor for so many decades, I got him a cake that said, you did it. So from my grandfather to my dad, my dad to me, and back to my dad, we've had a really cool history of celebrating each other, dad. So I'd love for that to be the final note is what you think about that history and what you think about the fact that you and I are undefeated in sending teams to the final four. <laughs> um, well, you know, when you look back on, on life, you're going to, you can count on how many people had an impact and who you are. And for the most part, most people will say their parents have. And uh, <clears throat> my father was a blue collar worker. He, he, when he went to work, he worked, you know, um, he put in he put in 150 percent in anything he ever did. And when he said that you did it, I said, "No, Dad. What you don't understand is we did it because a lot of me is you and Mom. You know, that's who I am. That's 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 what I know. All of the." traits 
about family and respect and listening and working hard. I learned from them. And I think I passed most of those on to you because I don't know how you do it and all the things that you do and still have time to sleep. Yeah. You know, and, and I appreciate that, you know, and I, and I think, you know, I tell people that's kind of going off of what you said that for me, you know, when I, when I reflect on my life and I, and I think about, you know, what I'm doing and, and why I'm doing it, I, I said that when I'm done here, that I would hope that whoever shows up to celebrate my life, cause I don't want people being sad, but that when I'm done, I, I would want people that interacted with me to say, interact with me to say, I don't know how he did it, but as, as much as he worked and as much as he gave to the world and showed himself to the world and allowed himself to be open to people all over the place, if you called him, he was there. If you needed him, he answered. And I don't know how, but he somehow made all of us feel like we were his only friend, that we were the person in priority. We were the person that mattered. And, and that's the legacy that I want to leave is for everybody to say, I don't know how he could get on a plane and come to me or drive to me or stay on the phone with me until three o'clock in the morning. But none of us felt like he didn't do it for us. Yet, how was it possible to have those hours in the day where he could work, do everything he does, be with his dog, be with his family, hang out, Yet when we needed him, he was there. And I think that that's the legacy. It's the one that I want to leave with people is the one of he was there. And and I think that showing up is 90% of the battle. They say that 10% of life is what is what happens to you. And 90% is how you react to it. And I've had to learn how to react to it better than giving it more than 10%. And, and I think I would like to think that I've gotten better with reacting to it because life can be hard at times. It can be difficult. It can be challenging to say the least. Yet, you know, I, I do have family and extended family. And my hope and my wish and my desire is that the people whose lives I cross paths with feel feel appreciated, feel valued, feel spot, you know, the spotlight on them and and feel that they matter. I think the best legacy you can leave in this world or in any world is to make people know and and truly feel that they matter. And, you know, I hope I do that. I really do. You're right. You're right. You know, wouldn't it be um, the perfect world if everybody could say that I did my best I changed the world a little bit, and when I did, it got better. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I think that's the legacy. You know, you leave your mark by making the world better, it, be it one person, one situation, one anything. If you can leave this world saying, hey, I was in it, and you know I was in it because of that, and in a good way. So, you know, Miami, UConn, FAU – and San Diego State, they give a lot of people a lot of reasons to cheer this morning and to be excited. And things as simple as sports can bring the world together, knock down barriers, 
and walls. And, and it's such an amazing thing to see. And without things like this, my dad and I don't get to have special memories. So dad, your final word on the fact that we got to do this together. We got to see these teams, the irony and the beauty of God and the blessings that I've received my whole life is just how incredibly he works that how could you and I have known that the teams that advanced from Albany were the teams that were going to go to the final four. So your final word on, you know, celebrating this together and having a special moment where we got to make our own personal history, not knowing that there was a bigger plan in effect that made it all the more sweet. It's a memory. We'll make many, many more and go Canes. That coming from pop. All right, dad. Well, I appreciate having you on the show this morning. I'll see you in a little bit because we got something cool coming up for the people of central and upstate New York and beyond after the show. So stay close to our social media as always, dad. Uh, thank you for the time that we got to spend together and for doing something so special. And, you know, and, and then this week to continue that by having some fish in Lent and Lent and watching the games again. And, you know, from my bracket to yours, that is now completely red. I, uh, I, I love that we have gotten to make so many memories together, especially recently. And I love you. I love you more than I can tell you. I love you too, boy. I'll talk to you soon. All right. See you, Pop. Be good. You too. Bye. See you.